Hello and welcome to uh, the next uh, in our series of podcasts for uh, university services staff um, and leaders of the university. And um, we've been doing this now for a couple of months. It's an opportunity for our staff to hear a little bit more around um, what the, the major initiatives for the university are going forward and, uh, and also just the perspective of, of colleagues around the place. So Ruth Fincher is my guest today. Thank you, Ruth, for uh, agreeing uh, to do this. Uh, Ruth's the Deputy Vice-Chancellor International and Redmond Barry Distinguished Professor in Geography. And I was trying to work out how long it is that I've known you, Ruth. I think it must be from about 2005, five, six. So we go back quite a while, don't we? We do. We go back a while, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so it's particularly... Um, good to to be able to talk to you in this way and and also share um, you with my colleagues because um, I've known you but but, but a lot of them probably haven't so so thank you and I I thought I'd start by just summarising your career here at the university um, because it is really quite remarkable when I first met you you were Dean of uh, Architecture Building and Planning but um, if I go through the list, um, it's quite stunning. President of the Academic Board, Pro Vice-Chancellor, Dean of the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning, Redmond Barry, Distinguished Professor in Geography, Chair in Geography, Professor of Urban Planning, Head of the first of the University of Melbourne's Interdisciplinary Research Institutes, the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute, Member of the Governing Board of the International Social Science Council, Past Vice President of the International uh, Geographical Union, Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia, Distinguished Fellow um, of the Institute of Australian Geographers and Member of the Order of Australia. It's it's a remarkable career and I know you're coming to the end of your stint as the, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor International. So, so what points out of, of that career really stand out for you and, and what's been the best role, I suppose? <laughs> Well, thank you, Neil, for reading out all those all those things. Of course, I've been here for a long time, um, and what you read out is a mixture of positions I've held and awards that or honours that kind colleagues have nominated me for. So they have that distinction. And I suppose the thing, before I tell you my favourite, favourites are always a hard thing to pick. But I suppose the thing that stands out for me from the list, if I look back, is the variety of parts of the university that I've worked in as an academic, which is because my discipline is a geographer. I'm an urban geographer, a social scientist. Um, And geography is a discipline that can be present in many different faculties or academic divisions of the university. So as you'll see in my list there, I've been a professor of urban planning because urban geography connects very closely to urban planning. And um, I'm currently, geography is in the science faculty, so I've been there. Geography was also once in arts for 50 years, and I was there, not for 50 (laughs) years, but I was there. Um, And then geography had a a brief time of about seven years in a faculty we no longer have, which was agriculture and resource management kind of faculty. So I've been in many different faculties, and, and I'm very interested in as you'll see with things like the Interdisciplinary Research Institute that I was involved with, I'm interested in questions of cross-disciplinary work. And um, I guess that also comes from being a geographer where in that discipline we have 
both natural science and social science and we teach with those two disciplines in conversation with each other. So we, you know, I've been bred as an academic and trained to think in a cross-disciplinary fashion and also I, I guess coming out of that and having been in all those different faculties and things, I really do have a, a I like to have a view across the university as a whole if you've been in a small faculty in this university, which I have, um, it's really important to look out beyond your little corner and see all the other amazing things there are to connect up with. So that that's what I take out of the list. And you asked me what my favourite was, my favourite position. And, and look, they've all been wonderful. I thought being president of Academic Board was just the greatest privilege. Um, but I think probably as an academic which I am principally, um, the, the, the best thing would have been to be, be, to be made a professor in this institution, which I've been professors of two things, but the first one was Professor of Urban Planning, which I was made in 1997, um, and which is where you and I knew each other when in the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning. And I guess the the recognition that, of course, means a very great deal is the one that's from this university as well, the, the Distinguished Professor Award. And I, I remember our time together in ABP and, and your commitment to continuing with academic pursuit yeah. as well as the role of being dean. Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought it was remarkable how you managed to, to kind of keep all of those juggling all of those balls in the air to, to, to make that, that that must have been a real challenge. It is, and I think that's the, for me, the, 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 the source of respect for an academic, um, in, particularly in this university, but in, in most universities, and I, I did my graduate work in North America, and certainly it was the case there. The, res, the respect derives from the, the quality of the research and teaching that you do, and you just have to keep doing that and it just has to keep getting better and better. And when you become an academic leader, um, you still have to do it. And and that's that, I think, is one of the most difficult things about being in a very senior position in, you know, wherever it is in university leadership, in a, in a school, in a faculty or in, in the, across the university as a whole, is to keep that, res- particularly the research going, because to keep a research career going means constant peer review. And you're con- you have to be up to date. You have to be going to international conferences. You have to be getting competitive research grants. You have to be publishing in the best journals you possibly can. And that is just a pressure that sits with you, even as you're undertaking leaderly tasks. So I, I think I'm not doing that now as as I am having this brief period as DVC International. And I think compared to other leadership roles I had in the university where I was being an up-to-date academic uh, researcher and teacher and so on, uh, it's it's not nearly so difficult if you don't have that expectation of yourself. But if you are if you are a serious academic, you have to do that. That's you can't let that drop in order to be a leader. You're not an academic leader without that, to, to me, in my way of thinking. And, and I remember th- that experience of, of working with you because I think that that's framed my reference in the university subsequently as a professional staff member and, and, and kind of manager and, and leader around how, how to interact with not only somebody who is busy but somebody who is passionate about their research and their their, their discipline uh, and how to work with that and find ways of 
um, making life easier if possible, but also finding ways of connection and, and, and points that, that you know you can you can think. Okay, so how can we how can we facilitate this more? I think for for me that was a, a real privilege, a great learning, and hopefully you know I always try and apply that. Um, subsequently, I, I think that uh, your time as president of the academic board was also uh, really interesting to watch, a little bit <laughs> oh from dear. from afar. <laughs> um, but I was, I mean, I was fascinated that because uh, I've worked with a number of presidents of the board now, um, and you were such a passionate advocate for the board; um, it was infectious. And I remember you writing your your, your little book about the role of the academic board. And I wondered if you could just give us a, a, a kind of sense of, of that, because um, for staff in university services, it, it, it's not immediately obvious uh, uh, and clear what the role of the board yeah, is. Yeah, and it was a very low-tech little manual <laughs> that I wrote. Low-tech, fantastic. Anyway. <laughs> um, okay, so I was, uh, and I st- remain, a very strong advocate of this university's academic board. So the academic board um, is a board whose members are in this university that differs a bit in different universities how what the composition of the board is. But the membership of the academic board at this university has always been, since it began in the university began in eighteen fifty three, all the full professors. So all the professors of the university are automatically members of the academic board by virtue of their appointment as professor. There also are um, representatives from the other academic ranks in the board, and there are uh, all the deans and all the DVCs are are members of the board and the vice-chancellors and provosts and so on. Um, And there are student members as well. Now, what the board does in the university is very clear in the university statutes. The university, you'll know, is its governing council is its governing board is the the university council and that's the body that oversees its probity and its activities and its successes and failures and asks questions about all those things it has in its um in its statutes and in the university act uh, a provision that the university will always have an academic board whose role is to oversee and ensure the high academic standards of the institution. So the academic board is is the the is is an academic task of monitoring and ensuring compliance with uh, whatever we perceive to be the the proper academic standards for our institution. That that applies to teaching and to research to whatever we define as the academic mission and activities of the university. It has to report to the council um, every council meeting and give uh, written reports and so on of its activities. It has a series of committees that oversee with great vigilance specific parts of the university's um, academic endeavours. So a lot of them have to do with teaching. Um, They are this selection procedures committee, which is the one that oversees and sets uh, the the selection standards for every course we teach, the entrance requirements, the English language requirements, uh, and monitors those with every academic division every year and has very strict procedures. So there's also academic programs committee, which is a huge committee that is the committee that if you're inventing a new course, you have to go to to get permission to have, and there are quite specific questions about what a new course can consist of. And there are others 
those, and there are a range of research, a couple of research-related committees as well. Um, so it, it's it's there. Oftentimes in faculties, people think it's a complete pain to have to, to have to go through this extra hoop to ensure that their new course or whatever is is structured in an appropriate way. But if you look at any of the audits that are ever done of the university or inquiries into whether its practices are appropriate, the board is is a huge safeguard and safety net against the academic standards of the institution declining or being corrupted in some way. And it's the it's the professors of the institution themselves doing that it, that work, and it is a great deal of work. In our case, it's always been elected by the members, um, and the vice chancellor comes and presents to the members of the board every time, and there are. There's every opportunity there for any professor or other member of the board to stand up and ask questions of the vice-chancellor or or any of the DVCs or management people who are there. And that's terrific. And and you don't... It's terrifying. It is terrifying. (laughs) You've probably been asked questions. It is terrifying. And if there's ever a controversial issue or a huge shift being made in the university, for example, when the Melbourne model was introduced, the it really can be terrifying and people come from all corners of the university, you know, half the law school will be sitting there in the back row with, who's, with their professors grilling whoever's presenting this proposed new change. So it is it is a way for the academic voice of the institution from all its different schools and faculties to come, to be brought to bear on whatever the question is that's being discussed. So I, I think it's terrific. I, I really think it's a great um, aspect of our governance that we should be very proud of, and it both serves us well in terms of vigilance over our standards, but also provides this this voice for querying our direction. So, so the, the the role of the board has got a, a, a fundamental check, um, such that I mean, people will be aware of the the kind of discussion from four corners and and around international Deep. student mm. standards and English language requirements and so on. But for us at Melbourne, the board has a, a critical role. To play in that. That's right. And, and um, yes, my, my people I work with have just been writing up a series of dot points about that to give to the University Council who have asked questions following the, the recent Four Corners report on this. Yes, so in our institution, it would be very difficult for um, a major diversion from our published entry standards uh, to be um, to be to be to be made um, because we would have these well, we A, have very publicly stated standards, both in the marks you have to have to get into a course and the English language levels, but we also have very great vigilance through the board committees of, of, of making sure that faculties comply with, with those rules when they when they um, offer students entry. And, and there are, um, on occasion, circumstances in which an individual student will be given an English language waiver um, if they haven't done the test, say, to meet the required English standard for a, for a course, but they happen to have been working in an English language university in the UK yeah. for the last yeah. 15 years or something. So in those circum- circumstances, which don't occur very often, uh, deans are now delegated to sign off. It, when I was president of the board, I used to have to do that sign off on those myself, but now it's delegated to deans. I think I saw the figures this morning. I think there were about 17 of those or something in, in second semester last year or you know so really there are very few um but it is a strong and you know very good safety net i think that we have here so so you've recently had the dvc 
international portfolio um and you 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 agreed to take it on for for six months and and um how how important is are international students to the University of Melbourne well i mean they are very important and they make up a large number of our students as you know um and they are if if we see ourselves as a global university and as uh, not just a student body, but a global university with, as the new Vice-Chancellor is now saying often, with convening power and the capacity to look at its own global leadership and try and enhance that, um, then then our students from overseas are a tremendously important part of that and a resource for us uh, as we try and develop those, uh, you know, a greater global presence, a greater capacity for global influence in whatever the ways are that we define that. Uh, I think it's actually very interesting how we're moving much more explicitly towards asking ourselves who our students are, and we've done this for a number of years, but looking at students from actually before we even meet them, when they're just applying to us or sending out feelers of interest, right through to when students are senior members of, of an alumni community, either here or somewhere in the world. And you can see how as we look into the future and think about our alumni communities and how we're going to be really trying to create better relationships with them, not just because they might write us a cheque, but because they're part of our ex-student community, then you can see that international students are going to be such a huge part of that, which is going to draw us all the time into other countries and, you know, what are we doing in other countries and how are we contributing to communities in other countries. So I think they're really an engine for us um, in our, in, in so far as they will really help us or could really help us if we, you know, if we really work together well with them in the, the uh, establishment of a much more global sense in our institution and, and for what it can do. Um, so, yeah, I, that there is a richness they bring uh, to our institution. As you know, I've done a bit of work in the past. I, I really don't like the kind of bureaucratic binary we use of international students and, and domestic, domestic and, students. Mm. Um, and I think we, we, you have to go way beyond that and, and think of students in much more nuanced ways as different individuals just from what those boxes would suggest to us. But, yeah, I mean, I do I do think they're a huge resource um, and in you, in thinking about the student as as a person right across their student related life cycle, we we can start to see the the, the large number of ways that they are um, they are intrinsic to to our our future and our nature. I just had a, a, a really wonderful you know experience of a visiting delegation a few weeks ago from Shandong University in China, um, which is a university that's been collaborating with people in our science faculty, I think mostly in chem- chemistry and physics and in chemical engineering as well, in engineering faculty. And and that collaboration, which is really reaching great heights in terms of research and, and exchange of, of research personnel, was really begun when, when a, a young guy came here 10 or 15 years ago as a postdoc and worked with one of our senior professors and then went back. I think he actually came from Shandong originally and went back and became has now become a professor there and is just tremendously enthusiastic about his Australian self and his Chinese self kind of being brought together through this collaboration. And to see 
his delight. He, he had brought his president here from Shandong University and they were, you know, cooking up some vast amount of money that the Chinese government was going to give and all lots of our professors were there and were so enthusiastic. And to think that this is the product of this early career researcher who was here just for a few years and loved it here and went back and really wants to continue, That that is what happens when you have PhD students who come here from overseas and postdocs, and, and it's what happens when ours go over there as, as well. well. Not yeah. even necessarily for their whole degree, but for, you know, say a chunk of their degree. How do you, how do you kind of, because I think historically we've thought about our international thinking and strategy as almost students on one side, yeah. research partnerships on the other, and, and kind of a gap in the middle. How, how do we more closely weave those together to to you know the example that you've described create that whole yeah yeah well i mean i th- i think that we're going i think with the new strategy document that's being developed at the moment across this year 2019 um, for the decade 2020 to 2030 in where we have the new vice chancellor who's you know got is going to build on the legacy that we've got but has some interest in some slightly um, new directions i suppose um, well, I think what we're going to see is a bit of a revisiting of the idea of what the international question actually is for a university like this. Um, and certainly in the past, I think we have tended to think about those two dimensions, Neil, that you describe of you know numbers of international students and where they come from and their diversity and so on. And then the fact that all academics have to have a strong international profile. I mean, that's part of their self-definition in this university. If you're not internationally known and doing international collaborations in your research, then, you know, you're not doing well enough. So there is always that interest in expanding those good research connections for our academic staff. Helps our university rankings as well, of course. But I think um, in the new strategy thinking that's going on at the moment, there's going to be a bit of a slightly more comprehensive conceptualization of the international or the global. Um, and that is going to be quite exciting, I think. And, you know, as you know, I've sh- I've shown you something I've written a bit on this. I, I find it helpful, this is, I guess because it's because I'm a geographer as well, to think about the international and how we as a university should think about it as we seek to expand our position in, in the world and in influencing you know, global approaches to the great problems of the world. I think it's interesting to think about the international realm in which the UN sits, the Sustainable Development Goals sit. Um, we are members of many cross-world organisations like Univers- Universitas 21, which mm-hmm. was actually invented in this university when uh, Alan Gilbert was, was Vice-Chancellor. There is that realm of the international uh, that we we need to say to ourselves, well, all right, can we, where can we be in that, in that world of where, which is a really, it is a separate world of international diplomacy and lobbying and, and huge cross-world research grants often funded by the, and it's often, often medical research grants, I think, funded by the big, the big uh, international foundations. Then, then there is a sphere that we've really spent a lot of time on, I think, which I think of as the sort of bilateral sphere of, of, re- of uh, us to region or us to country connections. So we might, you, you'll be aware we've recently designated uh, th- uh, three 
countries of the world as priorities in Asia for us. So China, India and Indonesia, they happen to be uh, parts of the world where, where the majority of our international students come from, but uh, that's not the reason for this designation. Um, so we, we have nominated those bilateral relationships. We have relationships with institutions in those places and indeed other places. Um, and that's there's been some very interesting discussion about whether in what has been called the Asian century, that I guess we're in, this is it, um, whether we might think about having actually an international um, base of influence by partnering with groups in Asia. So not just one other partner in a bilateral relationship in Asia, but maybe starting from a bilateral relationship, say with a bunch of Chinese universities or Indonesian ones, and then connecting up with all their partners to really ground an influential presence in Asia, and then to go to the big funding organisations or to the UN with a position developed from Asia rather than a position always developed from North America or the UK and, you know, through Cambridge and Oxford and so on. So it's quite an interesting discussion about the bilateral. And then, of course, the third the third scale of thinking about the global or the international is the local scale. One can be a global leader in one's own backyard. Mm. We have an amazing diaspora community in, in Melbourne, Melbourne and yeah. in, in Australia. You can think of Australia as our backyard, I guess. Um, and indeed, we have on our campus with our, with our students. So, so to me, that's a, a, it's an artifact, of course. These, these scales always interact with each other and, and are each other in many ways. But I think it's a useful checklist to think about what being global and trying to be a global leader and have global convening power actually means. And to th- those three scales help us to kind of identify some of the places, some of the s- sort of spatial scale type places in which we might locate our activity. I think you've sketched out, you know, such a, a wide terrain there. And um, do, do you think we have a moral responsibility in relation to that role of the university in that global context, in that sense of not just our backyard, but but certainly in relation to that and connecting people, but also regionally, um, bilaterally, globally? Is, does that come with the sort of almost the motto growing in the esteem of others? And yeah. w- this is the kind of place we want to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly think so. Um, I think we are a rich university. We never think we have enough money, but we are, in fact, a rich university in a rich country. Um, so I think we have to work hard not to seem self-serving in, in the yeah. way that we can seem self-serving if, if all we talk about when we talk about the international is getting more international students and lining up our own researchers with the best think tanks in the world so as to improve our research ratings. You know, we have have to go beyond that. And and I think that one of the things particularly about working with our alumni community – communities around the world is they will expect us to be be working with them when they go back to their countries – you know, so that so that something from our university um, is present in their countries with them. I, I do think it's a it's a there's a there's a level of generosity that we need to develop. And well, I mean, we have that in many of our research projects in our teaching already. But that we need to identify in ourselves in our strategic thinking. Um, and you know, what, if you think about, for example, at that international scale, which we don't we haven't done a lot of work. We haven't tried to do a lot of work at that scale. It's not been a narrative of ours. But there are some universities, in fact, Monash is doing quite a lot of work on this, who have taken the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which are 
a profoundly moral set of aims. I mean, you, you know, you could have some queries about some of the implementation strategies on them, but, uh, you know, they are about justice and equity and, and development and working with countries across the world that perhaps are less advantaged. And they are about evening things up. Um, so, so we could do worse, I think, than have a look at some of those frameworks to see whether they're a useful one for a narrative that we might use about some of our activities. Ruth, when, when we have these um, discussions, we, we always end with a, um, a few questions about um, gives an insight into you. So, so your favourite place on campus? Oh, you told me you were going to ask me these favourite questions. So I think, I, and I never have one answer, so I, I guess there's my favourite place on campus, my favourite inside a building place on campus would be the Ballew Library because I first went there when I was an undergraduate here many decades ago and despite all its renovations, it still smells the same. When you walk in the door, it still has the same smell that it had when it was... And it has the same stairwells, and so I'm very fond of that. I think that the plantings around this old university campus area that we are in is are just magnificent. So you'll know them well, the, the, the plantings along the north side of the old engineering building and that magnificent yes. tree, the yes. eucalypt at the end, at the western end, and the plantings around the entrance to University House and in front of Old Botany are just and the amazing tree that I think are just sublime. And I guess I'll have to say, I think the new architecture building is 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 <laughs> great. And having been for 10 years in the old architecture building, the thing oh, yeah. that really delights me about the new one is it actually has so many, so many design similarities to the old one, even though it it's <laughs> presumably doesn't leak and, it <laughs> and isn't dangerous anymore, but it has... You know, certain similarities. We, we lived through some of those joys of the, the glass ceiling yeah. collapsing in and the endless rain coming in. Yeah. So it must be remarkable now to see that yes. on campus and yes. completed. And um, uh, uh, your favourite book or, 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 or a writing that's inspired you? Okay. So... Um, I mean, I, I'm a voracious reader of novels, so I, I couldn't even say what a favourite one of those was. I suppose I should, I should probably should refer to the defining text that turned me into an urban geographer, an urban planner, which was a, a book written by a very, very famous geographer called David Harvey um, in 1973 called Social Justice in the City. And that theme has been the subject of all my research and all my teaching and all my PhD supervision ever since. A music, a, a particular track, or a particular or... track, yeah. Um, well, again, I, I I love music, and um, I, I I just wanted to say two things. I love a number of different sorts of music, but I sing in a very long-standing community choir, the Brunswick Women's Choir, um, and we commission a lot of songs from local women songwriters and so on. So I guess for a track, pe- people listening to this could go and look up on, on YouTube for the Brunswick Women's Choir, and hopefully you won't see me, but you'll see the, you might hear some of the music. Um, and I, I was thinking, you know, one listens to lots of different music, and but I was thinking that for, for us, people who've lived in Australia for a very long time, and particularly if you go overseas a lot, as I have done and lived overseas for a long time, when you come back, the, the, the thing that you hear all the time and, and that is a piece of music that totally defines your life is the majestic fanfare that precedes the ABC News. Mm-hmm. Which I, and I was looking up on the web about it because I have read about it before. 
And I see it was it was adopted in 1952 by the ABC, and every time the ABC tries to get rid of it, there's such a clamour. So that's across my whole life. I've heard that, and it's always meant coming home to me. So, so Ruth, you're, you're coming to the end of your, your term, and you're going to go and play more golf? Oh, God, I'm so awful at golf. Um, look, I, th- I am at that stage in my life where my career is certainly winding down, not up. Um, and it's an interesting stage, which you need to put quite a lot of work into to sort of create it. Um, so I still have some academic lines of presence in my life. I still have a few PhD students that are two or three that haven't quite finished and a bit of bit of research and 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 then and yeah doing other things I have a, a new grandchild um, which is always you know you can take take up as much time with that as you like um, as you're allowed to um, so yes yeah, so I have quite a number of things I still have a big international committee on which I sit and and so on so there's various activities and um, I guess, guess I could take up writers' fest, going to writers' festivals and things. One of those things that old ladies do. Um, but yeah, that's that's the range of things I'm doing. A bit of bit of work, but not not too much. Lots of mentoring whenever I'm asked. Well, Ruth, it's it's been a pleasure talking to you and working with you all these years, and I hope we'll still see you around a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, thank you for from all the professional staff who who've had contact with you and your support for them because you've been a terrific advocate over the years and uh, for taking the time to, to come and talk to me today as you're, I'm sure, trying to finish things off before you, you, you hand on the baton to someone else. So, so thank you and, and um, Godspeed, good health and so on with the next stage of your, your journey. Thank you. Thank you very much, Neil. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you and, and, of course, hopefully the professional staff listening to this will find some bits and pieces useful and they are such an important part of our institution, a really hugely important part.